This series presents information based in part on theory and conjecture. The facts that will be presented are true. Scientists representing the world's foremost research centers took part in the examination of the evidence. I'm Chad. And together, we're a pair of normal guys. Well, as normal as you can be. But what's normal? I don't know. I've never, <laughs> I've never seen an official scientific chart. No, there's no... I mean, I guess Webster says what normal is, but... Well, dictionary, yeah, sure. But his name was Miriam, so... Yeah, that's true. Anyway, <laughs> anything mm-hmm. new, Chad? Uh, no, sir. Just uh, going through life's little muddy puddle and walking on out of it. That's about it. Making my way in the world today. <laughs> Takes everything you got. That's true. <laughs> it does. Mm-hmm. Nothing uh, really new uh, in the world of me the past oh. couple weeks, so. Well, that's Kind of a, a dull, boring couple weeks. That's okay, because no matter how dull and boring it was, today is very exciting. It is. We're foregoing the Paro News stories, mm-hmm. so Chad doesn't have to venture over to the Paro News desk. Thank God. <laughs> so far away. It is. And, uh. We actually are talking with author Sylvia Schultz tonight on this episode. We are talking about her newest book, 44 Years of Darkness, a true story of madness, tragedy, and shattered love. Mm-hmm. And you know, Chad, in the latter part of the 19th century, Rhoda Derry spent over 40 years in the Adams County Poor Farm, curled in a fetal position in a box bed that they called a Utica crib. Mm. She had been committed there by her own family when they could no longer care for her at home. She spent decades locked away from the world. And you know what her crime was, Chad? What's that? She fell in love. Oh. So, without further ado, Sylvia, welcome to Paranormal Guys. Thank you so much for having me. Hi, Sylvia. It's good to talk with you. Uh, An esteemed author, paranormal investigator. I understand you write fiction and nonfiction. And um, who better to tell this story? (laughs) Thank you very much. Uh, the story of Rhoda Derry is very close to my heart. I, I have discovered sort of a kinship with her over the years that I've been hearing her story and sharing her story with others. Mm-hmm. So what did you, Chris, you had something that you wanted to say? On yeah. Um, you know, before we get into the meat of the uh, Rhoda Derry's Derry. Yeah, I'm going to cut that. Fix that. Rhoda Derry story, uh, Sylvia, what, what originally piqued your interest in the paranormal? and then in turn led to writing about it. Oh, man. I have loved true ghost stories ever since I was a little kid. Um, I didn't grow up in a haunted house. I don't see dead people. I never have been able to. But I've always been fascinated with the paranormal. When I was a very young child, um, we we took a uh, family vacation, and um, it was myself, my sister, who was three years younger, our infant sister, and a cousin. So it was um, four kids in the back seat of a car, and my parents drove us to Missouri to visit friends of my mom's. And on one of these nights that we stopped, my dad, instead of camping somewhere or getting a hotel, decided to stop for the night in a cemetery. <laughs> nice. Wow. And, <laughs> and he knew it was cheap. I mean, free, and nobody was going to bother him. Nobody was going to mess with the the car or anything. So he stopped, and he and my mom got out and took my infant sister with them and set up the tent and 
camp and let us three kids sleep. So it was. <laughs> <laughs> so you can imagine the reaction when I wake up. I'm eight years old and <laughs> sitting up, looking around, blearily going, "Okay, it's uh, we're stopped. It's light out." Holy cats! We're in a cemetery. Oh wow. my god! That would be a little bit surprising. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you don't have to and worry my about. My and our cousin were, were just five, so I'm the I'm the biggest kid in the car, and I'm just petrified. <laughs> <laughs> wow! So yeah, that was my introduction to the world of of the the creepy and paranormal. But I got over it, and um, I just I love true ghost stories. I love experiencing experiencing them, and I love sharing them with people. Wow, well, that's great. Um, so I understand that another book that you wrote kind of led into this um, story about Rhoda Derry. Is it that correct? Led into it very neatly, yes, yes. Um, <laughs> the, the first book of paranormal nonfiction I wrote was called Ghosts of the Illinois River. As I was working on that, people kept saying, oh, you're working on a book of ghost stories? You have got to check out the Peoria State Hospital. It's mm-hmm. just across the river. It's just a little bit north of you. You have to go and see it. It's an abandoned mental asylum. <laughs> like, oh, really? Tell me more. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so yeah, I, I started I started investigating this place. And seriously, it's, it's a 10-minute motorcycle ride from my front door. Wow. And you say haunted mental asylum, and your mind automatically goes all American horror story on you. <laughs> and you you automatically assume pain and fear and abuse. And it is my great joy and my great privilege to be able to tell people that was not the case at the Peoria State Hospital. This is a place of compassion. This is a place where the patients were treated like family. Mm-hmm. Some of those patients lived their entire lives there, 50 years and more. So, and those spirits are there because they want to be. Yeah. And one of those patients, well, as the, the more I learned about the place, the more I knew the story had to be shared. So that's how Fractured Spirits, Hauntings at the Peoria State Hospital came to be. Okay. Yeah, that's what and I was going to ask about, the that, Fractured Spirits book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All about the, the, the hauntings and history of the Peoria State Hospital. And it was one of those patients, Rhoda Derry, who really captured my attention. And her story is told in 44 Years in Darkness. Okay. Right. And yeah, that was uh, one question that I wanted to ask you was, you know, since living just down the road from uh, Peoria, <laughs> Peoria State, you know, that naturally with your interest in the paranormal and writing would lead to fractured spirits. But then yeah. what what makes Rhoda's door? Rhoda's story so compelling that she gets singled out and gets her own special treatment? (laughs) That's a really good question. (laughs) Dr. George Zeller, the uh, superintendent of the Peoria State Hospital, probably will be a little bit sore at me for doing this because he did not want any one of his patients to be treated any better than any other. Right. He did, not, he did not believe in singling people out and giving them special attention. He believed that everyone should be treated equally. But Rhoda's story is so compelling to me and to many other people that she really did deserve her own book. This was a young woman in the middle of the 19th century. And in the book, I look at some of these the pressures the social pressures on young women of that era, the, 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 the different forces that were pulling them back and forth. Right, and, and that's, that's was, one thing that I really enjoyed about, especially that beginning of the book there, where you put so much time and effort into explaining the, the situation at the time that oh, we went into everything. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, so, so I... I wanted to look at not only Rhoda's story, but the story of young women in that situation and what were the pressures on her that forced her in the direction that she went. And here's this perfectly ordinary young woman, poor but very pretty, and she falls in love and it ruins her life. Right. (laughs) And just that simple sentence 
it's like, oh my gosh, I have to know more about this. What in the world happened? She did something as natural as falling in love. And she suffered the rest of her life for that decision. Now I understand. How could you not want to write read an entire book about that? Exactly. Now I understand that some of what caused this, this start to this downfall actually had to do with witchcraft in a way. Is that right? Yes. Yes. Rhoda's story actually starts two generations before. Her grandmother was a practitioner of Pennsylvania Dutch hex magic. So, yeah, that uh, that's I thought that was one of the was, most I guess interesting or fascinating players in the whole story was uh Maul Derry. Just her entire story was just amazing. <laughs> it was such a joy and a treat to learn about this stuff and all of these different facets of Rhoda's story and some of these things that well most of these things she had no control over whatsoever and the, you know the fact that her grandmother was so involved in witchcraft and that ended up affecting Rhoda so powerfully it's just fascinating to me oh definitely yeah for belief to put you on a path it um it's just so destructive <laughs> in the in that way because you really feel that something has has cursed you that's that's pretty amazing um now with with Rhoda now when she was first institutionalized what what was the actual occurrence that happened um involving where she had felt something with witchcraft had happened to her what actually kicked that off when did she first feel that something dark and ominous had happened to her well the situation was this Rhoda had fallen in love. She was 16 years old at this point. She had fallen in love with the son of a neighboring farm family, Charles Phoenix. Now, Rhoda was the youngest of nine children. She was the baby of the family. Very, very pretty girl. But the dairies were very, very poor. The Phoenixes, on the other hand, were very well off. Charles was the first son of only four children, so he stood to inherit his father's land after Frederick passed away. Now, Nancy Phoenix, Charles's mother, was very much against this relationship. She saw, they were both from small towns, but Nancy Phoenix saw a very big gap in their social classes. They're both farmers, they're both farm families, but Nancy Phoenix felt that her family was so far above the dairies in Mm. wealth and social status that she was not going to allow Charles to marry Rhoda. She was so much against this relationship that she approached Rhoda in the street and said, if you do not release my son from this engagement, I will curse you. (laughs) Rhoda took her seriously. (laughs) Mm. A couple weeks after this, um, she suffered some sort of break with consensual reality she started hallucinating. She swore that invisible witches were after her. She swore that old Scratch, the devil, was after her. She would cower in the corner of her cabin, of the family cabin, screaming that invisible witches were swooping down on her. And the only person that even tried to understand what Rhoda was going through was her mother, Rachel. And Rachel actually took to carrying a pistol in her apron pocket to shoot at these invisible witches and try to mollify these hallucinations that Rhoda was going through. I'm not exactly sure that nowadays we would consider live gunfire (laughs) an appropriate (laughs) mental mental health technique, but that's what she was trying to do. She was trying to say, oh, okay, I, I, I see them. I see them. I'll take care of them for you. Right. That, that shows you but, a good mother there. I mean, you're going to shoot up the house to take really care of your did. daughter's really imaginary witches. <laughs> she really tried to understand this. But um, Rhoda was suffering so terribly from these hallucinations that her parents, Jacob and Rachel, decided to have her committed to the state hospital at Jacksonville, the Illinois State Hospital in in Jacksonville. Now, at that point, state hospitals were, they they were under the the 
supervision of a board of trustees. They did the best they could, but there were no facilities that let patients stay longer than two years. The Peoria State Hospital was the very first state hospital that was designed specifically for long-term care like that. Before they opened, the Illinois State Hospital and other state hospitals in Illinois, they didn't have the bed space and they didn't have the facilities to care for people longer than two years. You had that amount of time to get better, and if you didn't, you were released as incurable. Right. Because they just had to use your bed for somebody else who maybe had a chance of getting better in six months. Hmm. Now, I also understand that when Rhoda was there, something unusual had started to happen other than the, of course, the oh, yes. stress. <laughs> this, this is something that no one has ever been able to explain. When she was there, she was a violent patient. She was probably kept on the eighth ward, which is what was designed to care for violent patients. Rhoda was locked in her room every night. And every morning, the attendants would find her wandering the grounds of the asylum looking for Charles Phoenix. Wow. And the attendants (laughs) would find her And they would say, who let you out? And Rhoda's answer was always the same. Nancy Phoenix let me out. That's crazy. Yeah. So, so do you think... I have my own theory on that. (laughs) Well, that's what I was... I'm kind of getting at something here. I want to see if if our theories are kind of the same. Do you think all that emotional trauma and all those emotions focused and maybe created something or gave her a way to get out like um a tulpa like a tulpa bingo mm-hmm. yes exactly that is my theory exactly i think that the emotion she felt of losing charles and being abandoned by her family she was so focused on nancy phoenix who she saw and quite rightly so as the instigator of all this heartbreak in her life she ended up inadvertently creating a thought form, a tulpa. Wow. And that <laughs> that led to the door being unlocked. So we have... And so, so that she could go out and search for Charles. So we have a witchcraft link, a tulpa, potentially. And yeah. so during all this time, what, what was going on with Charles? Did Charles ever try to... We don't know. Really? We don't know. The Phoenix family, I tried and tried and tried to find them. I thought, my goodness, well, how marvelous would that be if after 150 years I would be the one to find Charles Phoenix? Mm -hmm. But they completely drop out of the historical record. There is not a trace of any of them. Wow. They're just gone. Dust in the wind. That's that's (laughs) crazy that they've just disappeared like that. A prominent, wealthy family just no trace. Well, to to okay to throw my two cents in, then mm-hmm. we're going witchcraft yeah. and then tulpa. I'm going with uh, UFO. You think they were abducted? Yes, <laughs> alien abduction. <laughs> That's what happened? Little men in black. Well, you know, exactly. It's a theory. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so wow. So yeah. she's she's been institutionalized. She's violent. She's just distraught. Um, she's mysteriously being released and wandering around where does she where does she go from there because she's got two years well she's she's released as incurable after two years her family cared for her at home as long as they could but in 1860 her mother died and her mother was the only person that tried to understand what Rhoda was going through and at this point in time, the dairies were so poor that they, the, the census records show them living with other families. They weren't even, they didn't even have any land to call their own. Mm-hmm. They lived with other families. And at, at the time of Rachel's death in 1860, they were living with another farm family. And this family had an eight-year-old boy. 
And I'm really thinking that what happened was that the mother of the family said, look, I cannot have a crazy woman living in my house with my son. Understandable. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So um, Jacob made the heartbreaking decision to have Rhoda committed to the Adams County almshouse. Mm -hmm. Now, almshouses in the middle of the 19th century had the potential to be really horrifying places. If you had $25 for a license, and an empty barn in your backyard, you could open open up an almshouse because they didn't think that the mentally ill could feel heat or cold. They were treated sometimes no better than animals. I remember reading Um, a few things about almshouses that weren't too too nice. And it was just... Yeah, and even the the uh, uh, state-run almshouses, the county-run almshouses... Some of those were pretty, pretty grim. Um, the Adams County Almshouse was better than most. Um, they had a board of trustees. They had It was very well-sighted. It was on some rolling landscape with a good water source and some woods around. Uh, they did the very best they could. But what people have to remember about almshouses is that they were simply designed as a place for, if you were down on your luck, you could go and get three hots in a cot. They were never designed for the care of the mentally ill, but poor people go crazy too. So once she was in the almshouse, how did they deal with her and her, her specific issues? What did they do to try and, and help? Well, they didn't do much to help, that's for sure. Rhoda was very violent. She had been abandoned by her family. Her fiancé was who knows where. Her mother had just died. She'd spent two years institutionalized, and here she is just thrown into an almshouse and forgotten. She became very violent. Um, when she was in the almshouse, she developed a condition called pica, which is a compulsion to eat inappropriate objects. Yep. <laughs> if she was given a piece of chicken... She would just cram it down, bones and all. She wouldn't even pay attention to the fact that she was eating the bones. She would pick stuff up off the floor, um, a nail. You know, she'd just pop it into her mouth. She would she would fly at people and try to pick the buttons off their blouses and swallow them. So for her own protection, the superintendent of the almshouse decided to have Rhoda put into something called a Utica crib. And that's exactly what it sounds like. It's about the size of a baby's crib. It sits on the floor. But the additional part of this crib that is not included in a baby's crib is it has a barred top that locks. Hmm. You the know, that is <laughs> locked in. I, I This sounds bad, but, you know, I, I have a seven and a four-year-old daughter, and occasionally... That that thoughts came up, like, how can I get them to stay in something? But, yeah, when, because uh, I know when I uh, was reading the book, I, you know, when the term Utica Crib came up at first, I had no idea. But then as you described it, I just thought, that's, that's horrible. I mean, that's just bad. Yeah. Yeah. And this, this was standard issue equipment in mental asylums at the time. Right, and that's what, uh, what was it, in one part you said that they, uh, some patients actually liked being in there just because of the close quarters? They did, yes. Yeah. The way some autistic kids like to be swaddled today, or they like to be held. Uh, like Temple Grandin invented that hugging thing where she could be, she she could feel that sense of closeness without anyone actually touching her. Right. And it's the very same thing. And um, in 1880, a reporter set out to do an expose about the Utica cribs, and he talked to patients, and one of the patients told him straight out, I sleepwalk, and if I am locked into a Utica crib at night by a nurse, I know where I'm going to wake up in the morning. Right. And that's a very great comfort to me. Yeah, definitely. So it was not designed as an instrument of torture. It really wasn't. Hmm. But the thing is, those those cribs were never designed for use longer than overnight. Right, and that's one thing. Uh, here for 
was she basically was Rhoda basically kept in there constantly? Because I know that if this wasn't a feature of all Utica cribs, at least the one that she was kept in, they actually had a hole in the bottom of yes. it to allow you know bodily functions <laughs> to exit the crib. Precisely. Yeah. Yes. Yes. The Utica crib was usually lined with a thin hospital mattress. Rhoda's was not. Rhoda's was lined with straw with a strategically cut hole. Um, there is a picture in the book of um, a box bed. She was moved to a box bed after uh, after a couple of decades of being in the crib. And you can see that there's a tray underneath the bed. It's pulled out just a couple of inches. Right. And just like a rabbit cage, and for the exact same reason. Wow. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's it's just it's shocking. I mean, it's just shocking to hear that that could be a situation for anyone. Um, yeah, when when she was in there and they've got her confined in this space, it sounds like she just didn't get to come out of there. What how did she deal with that? What what did she finally just <laughs> decide she needed to do? She, she dealt with it very, very poorly, as as any of us would do. I can't imagine spending 44 minutes trapped, locked in a Utica crib without any way of getting out, and much less 44 years. Sometime in the first 10 years of this treatment, Rhoda decided that she no longer wanted to watch the world go by through the bars of a cage, and she clawed her own eyes out. Wow. That <laughs> can't imagine that. Yeah. She uh, beat on her face so much that her front teeth fell out. And now remember, this is, I, she, she's in the almshouse. There are other poor folks in with her. They know why she's in there. They know that she'll just put anything into her mouth. And I have to think, I mean, it's a horrible thing to consider, but I have to think that sometimes she became the entertainment for some of the other people in the almshouse. They were like, oh, hey, well, let, let's, let's, let's give her a button, see if she'll put that in her mouth. So I just had this image of poor Rhoda in that cage being poked at and prodded at through the bars. Um, when she arrived at the Peoria State Hospital, she, she could not speak. So she couldn't tell anyone what happened to her. But if there's in the photographs that you see, you can see that her collarbones have been broken. There's they're kind of scented up under her skin. So sometime when she was in the almshouse, her collarbones were broken. Wow. And this was forty four years that she yes. was in that. And yes. you know, another I don't think it was abuse. I think it was somebody outside the cage and Rhoda's stretching her arms through the bars to get at what are they, whatever they were holding just out of arm's reach and not caring about what she was doing to her body and just pressing so hard that the collarbone snapped. Wow. Yeah. And, but yeah, one, one thing that I thought really put this in perspective that, you know, you hear 44 years and it's just a number. You think, okay, 44 years. But there's one uh, chapter in the book where you go through a list of historic events that took place in the 44 years that she spent in that Utica crib that it's just amazing. Just how many presidents we had, the things that happened, <laughs> yeah. all of these just major events in the world that went on while she just, you know, was stuck in that yeah. Utica crib. Thank you very much for mentioning that. I, I put a lot of thought and work into that, and I, I wanted to, to give people an idea of how long 44 years is. I mean, you can say, oh, well, it's a generation, it's a lifetime, um, you know, but, but putting all those events in perspective, it really right. helps you get a handle on how long 44 years right. and, really and is. And thank you for noticing that. Just the list of the presidents in the United States yeah. and that, I think that right there was one that just... And how many states got added to the Union? Right. <laughs> just amazing. It, it makes you think that if, okay, let's say that that day, there was a day that she could just 
mentally be cured. And she got to leave. The entire world that she knew before she went in there would just pretty much be gone. It would have changed so much. Yeah. Wow. So, so she's had this, this horrible, this horrific situation go on. Was there any light at the end of the tunnel? Was there any salvation that was coming for this woman? There actually was. I am delighted to say that Rhoda's story does have a redemptive ending. In 1902, the Peoria State Hospital opened. Their first superintendent was Dr. George A. Zeller. He firmly believed that no patient was incurable. The asylum actually started off as the Illinois Asylum for the Incurable Insane. Dr. Zeller went to the state legislature, and he said, you have got to change the name of this place. Nobody is incurable. Nobody is past help. So they decided to change it to the Peoria State Hospital. Now, how do you prove that? How do you prove that no one is beyond help? Well, what you do is you go around to all of the almshouses in the state, and you find the most wretched, abused, pitiable, horrifying cases, and you bring them to your asylum and you care for them. In 1904, Dr. George Zeller came to the Adams County Alms House. He saw Rhoda Derry there. By this time, she had been moved to the box bed. She was covered with a sheet of canvas. That's all she would tolerate. Hmm. He took one look at her and he said, this patient is coming with me. And the superintendent of the almshouse didn't want to let Rhoda go because he figured that the almshouse was going to be blamed for her condition. And Dr. Zeller said, either this patient comes with me or I shut your institution down effective immediately. Now, September 26th, 1904, there was a train that was carrying the patients from Adams County to Bartonville. The train got in very late that night. There was a washout on the tracks. The patients, about 60 of them, were being transported on boxcars. So it wasn't until about 1.30 in the morning that the nurses and the attendants got the call that the train had finally arrived at the station. So they went down to meet the train, and they escorted these patients off of the boxcars, and they were standing on the platform of the station. And the attendants went into the boxcar to make sure no one had been left behind. And there was this great big wicker laundry basket sitting at one end of the boxcar. Now, this is not usual. Patients didn't, they arrived in the clothes they stood up in. They were not sent along with a lot of clothing. But there was this basket there, undeniably full of clothes. And uh, the attendant said, oh, well, I guess this comes off too. So one attendant on each end of this big, heavy laundry basket, they hump it off with a boxcar, and they set it down on the platform. And as soon as they set it down, the lid opens, and the clothes part, and there sits Rhoda, jabbering away at people. She had been carried in the basket because her hips were so wasted that she could no longer sit in a chair for any length of time. That night... For the first time in 44 years, Rhoda Derry slept in a bed with clean white sheets. Wow. That that just, if that's not a story that just pulls out every emotion you can have, just it, there's nothing that's going to affect you. Yeah. Yeah. I can't I, I, yeah, you can hear me. I get choked up. Every, I've told that story a hundred times. <laughs> I, I still get, I still get choked up about it. I, I can't imagine. Uh, and any, she, she was rescued. I can't imagine. <laughs> and she knew. She knew Doctor Zeller was her, was her savior. So she's, she's been transported in a laundry basket, and there with uh, linens and things, and she's been discovered. Now, this is the beginning of finally being treated like a person again. How how does it exactly. all start? Exactly. Well, she could no longer see. 
but the nurses decided that she was going to become the daughter of the institution. The nurses waited on her hand and foot. (laughs) They knew her excruciating history, so they made sure that she wanted for nothing. They took her out into the gardens and let her feel the sun on her face and listen to the bird song and smell the flowers whose colors she could no longer see. They took her to dances and they let her listen to the music. And I just have this, this mental image of Rhoda sitting in a wheelchair just for a short amount of time, but being wheeled to the dance and, and just clapping her hands and smiling because she could listen to music again. And uh, she absolutely knew that Dr. Zeller was her savior. She knew who her rescuer was. Every time he came into the room, she would just light up. She knew. Understandably. I mean, (laughs) after being treated the way she was for that long, yeah. I mean, he was, I could see where he would be her favorite person. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, definitely. And he actually used her as a poster child for mental health, for the treatment of the mentally ill. She became famous in the last two years of her life. People came from... uh, counties and states and even from across the world to see this woman who had been brought to the asylum in a basket and to hear her horrifying story that had such a redemptive ending. And um, the Peoria State Hospital Museum now has the Utica crib, one of our original Utica cribs. Um, It's not the one that Rhoda was in. We're still looking for that one, (laughs) Mm -hmm. but um, it does have one of the original Utica cribs that came with the asylum at the very beginning, and it's kind of it's kind of beat up around the edges. And the reason for that is that Dr. Zeller made great use of that Utica crib. He would fill it with handcuffs and straight jackets and straight gowns and bed saddles. And he would take it around to state fairs, and he would display these things. And he would say, this is what we do not use at the Peoria State Hospital. If you send your loved one to us for care, this is what they will not experience. And he used Rhoda the very same way. He didn't take her around and display her, but he let people come in and visit her and talk to her and say, this is what happens to a human body when it's trapped in a cage for 44 years. We have got to do better by our mentally ill. Exactly. And now I believe uh, it was, despite everything that Rhoda had been through, unfortunately, TB is what took her out only after what it was two years. I believe she was at Peoria state. Yes. She was, she was with us for two years. Yeah. She probably picked up TV in the almshouse. Right. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. That's, that's probably where it happened. Um, TV was a scourge from the very beginning of the asylum's history. Um, at the, when the asylum was first built, they built two hospitals right away to care for TB patients. They also built a solarium on the grounds, and they had a tent colony for the care of tuberculosis patients. But even with those safeguards in place and those facilities in place, TB was still rampant. So when Rhoda came down with tuberculosis, when her case became full-blown, she was moved from her cottage to Dining Hall A, They had to press the dining halls into service for the care of these TB patients. And Dining Hall A still stands. It's one of the 13 remaining buildings of the asylum that is still standing. So that is where Rhoda was uh, cared for during the last few months of her life. And that is where she passed away, October 9th, 1906, the day before she would have turned 72. Wow. That's another thing that was amazing to me, that just everything that, she had been through she lived 
to se- to be seventy. You know, a day from being seventy two. Yeah. You know, at that yeah. point yeah. in time too, because yeah. people she turned seventy when she was with us, and for she she was a young woman when she went in, and she just survived. She just kept on living no matter what. Hmm. And that takes a lot of courage. Oh, definitely. <laughs> it really does. Definitely. But um, yeah. so now we know about the life that she led, but where does her story go from there? What do we know about uh, her now? Rhoda Derry is one of our favorite resident ghosts at the Peoria State Hospital, one of many. But she holds a special place in our, her, our hearts for everything she went through. Rhoda is buried on the grounds of the Peoria State Hospital. She lies in Cemetery 1. And there are always flowers on her grave. There's a little porcelain angel that sits and watches over her. Um, she gets visitors. <laughs> um, I I did the uh, book launch party on October 10th of last year. That happened to be the uh, um, her birthday. Okay. So, <laughs> so I had a vase of flowers on the table. And I had a birthday card, and I had people sign it. And I had gone to a ghost conference um, a few weeks before that, and I had people at the conference sign the card. So after the book signing, um, I went to Rhoda's grave in Cemetery One, and I gave her her flowers, and I gave her her birthday card, and I read the quotes people had written in it for her. And I, I like to think that she enjoyed that, because she is a, still a very much a part of the paranormal at the Peoria State Hospital. Um, she picked up the habit of chewing tobacco in her teen years, <laughs> and she she continued that when she was at the Peoria State Hospital. Um, her favorite thing was a little bit of chaw, and if she knew she had, if she knew that you had some in your pocket, she would crab along the floor, and she couldn't stand up because her hips had de- degenerated so much. But she would cr- kind of crawl across the floor, and she'd tug on your pants leg to ask for some of that tobacco you had in your pocket. So that is part of her lore. She loved that hilltop so much that anywhere on the hilltop, but especially in front of her grave, if you smell chewing tobacco and you feel a tugging on your pants leg, that's Rhoda trying to get your attention. (laughs) Wow. Now, has Rhoda ever made herself known to you? Have you ever seen her? Uh, unfortunately, I have not ever seen her. I have not had the privilege of that. But other people have, and they have they have been kind enough to pass along a message from Rhoda to me. They say that she is very aware of what I'm doing. She's aware of the stories that are told about her. She is aware that a book has been written about her, and she is just thrilled about it. So that really really made me feel good oh definitely when now when whenever i'm out there i stop and say hi (laughs) (laughs) well now when others see her she makes her presence known how does she appear does she she... does (laughs) well um i have spoken with two people who have actually seen her um and have known that it's her. Uh, these are psychic mediums who have seen her, so they, they are able to identify her instead of just somebody taking a picture of somebody in a long white dress and saying, oh, that's, that might be Rhoda, we're not sure. Mm-hmm. These are mediums that have been able to identify her. Um, one of the mediums, Liz, <laughs> was so powerfully affected by Rhoda's story that she, she won't call her by name out of respect. She'll always say, your girlfriend or girlfriend down in the cemetery. (laughs) But she said that Rhoda is still there, and she appears in the way she was most happy in life. So she says, if you see a beautiful young woman with dark hair dressed in Victorian clothing, ask her what her name is. So that's how Liz experienced her. And then Lisa shared just the most wonderful thing with me, the most wonderful story with me. Um, I was able to spend two days ghost hunting with um, a multi-group event 
last July, and um, Lisa was one of these ghost hunters that, that showed up for this event. She had heard Rhoda's story, and on Friday night, she was investigating with a group, and she felt someone clasping her leg below the knee. And she spoke up and said something about it, and one of the guides at the Pollock Hospital, where they were investigating, said, oh, that's probably Rhoda Derry, and explained why. And uh, I told Rhoda's story, and Lisa listened to me tell Rhoda's story several times. So all Saturday, Lisa was just stewing about this. She said, oh, my goodness, this is so unfair. I mean, here she is. She's had this excruciating life, and even in the afterlife, she's still reduced to crawling around on the floor and tugging on people's pants legs. That's How is that even fair? That's just horrible. So they, the group all came back to the Pollock Hospital at, um, on Saturday late afternoon, and Lisa's wandering around the hospital looking at things, and she, she stops and she becomes aware. She's a medium. She becomes aware that there's somebody next to her sitting on the floor. And she looks down, and she sees Rhoda. And Rhoda cocks her head up at her and makes eye contact with Lisa. And then Rhoda got to her knees and then got to her feet and stood tall and proud and gestured to herself as if to say, See? It's me. I'm whole. I'm here. I'm whole on the other side. And Lisa got the impression from her that, and and this is is what Lisa told me. She said, Rhoda is perfectly aware of her lore. She knows that people expect her to get their attention by tugging on their pants legs. So that's what she does. She does that because she wants you to know that it's Rhoda Derry trying to communicate with you. That's amazing. And that's, you know, wow. That's just amazing that she went through all that. Things ended the way they did. And now, you know, there's some, there's some verification that in the end she's, she's okay. (laughs) I was so relieved to hear that. I really was. I bet. Now, when you, when you decided to write this book, I understand there were some personal things that had gone on that kind of got you involved with this. Um, well, do you yes. mind sharing, sharing a little bit of that? I don't mind at all. It's, it's, it's part of the book, so I, I guess I can talk about it on the air. Um, as I was thinking of how best to share Rhoda's story with the world, I had the idea... I got to thinking, I said, you know, here's this young woman in the middle of the 19th century, and there are social pressures on her, and there are mixed messages coming from magazines and people that she talks to and the, the things she's exposed to. There are a lot of mixed messages messages going on. And I thought to myself, how can I best bring this to my readers? How can I bring this 19th century story into something that would be within living memory? How would I bring this into, say, the middle of the 20th century? Because most of my readers are going to remember that. Mm-hmm. And I realized, I thought to myself, who do I know who is a young woman in the middle of the 20th century who also experienced society's pressures and mixed messages, and who also suffered from mental illness. And the answer came to me. My mother, Dorothy, uh, suffered terribly from mental illness, and she experienced the same, not the same, but very similar mixed messages from society, trying to tell her to to do one thing but then limit her in other ways, And hers was the experience of many young women in the middle of the 20th century, just as Rhoda's experience was the experience of many young women in the middle of the 19th century. Right. So I told Dorothy's story, um, which does 
I'll let readers discover this for themselves, but uh, Dorothy's story does not have the happy ending that Rhoda's story does. Mm-hmm. Wow. But she was my mother, so <laughs> so she's she's part of me. And I suffer from depression as well and anxiety, so I, I kind of, I can, I mean, I I got to marry the man I loved. <laughs> I'm happy with him, so I, I can't really put myself into Rhoda's shoes, but I can understand sort of what both Rhoda and Dorothy went through because I suffered from that almost every day of my life, too. Right. So so I have a lot of compassion and empathy for, for both these young women. Right. Now, not not to completely put on the brakes and change directions on you, <laughs> but... uh. <laughs> One thing that was in the uh, the the back of the book in an appendix that I wanted yeah. to ask you about was uh, the situation you had with Ghost Asylum <laughs> because uh, I I <sighs> Chad knows this mm-hmm. that I have very very mixed emotions about any just to put a label on it paranormal television show that yeah. I I feel there are some out there that try to do a good job and put forth a what they're saying is true real account of what's going on then yeah. i then i feel there's shows on there like uh apparently the experience you had with ghost asylum <laughs> uh, good lord <laughs> yeah so um ghost asylum right um i i tend not to watch the paranormal shows on tv right I, I tend to watch like the, the smaller shows on YouTube, like Ghost Crier and Shadow Hunters, which I highly recommend both of them. They're they're wonderful. I, I find that the bigger the outfit and the more famous they are, the more squirrely they tend to be. <laughs> right. The hey, how are we going to get ratings? <laughs> exactly. I mean, these these independent outfits are just so much more. Believable. They're willing to debunk things. And um, all right, so I'm I'm dancing around the subject. I know. <laughs> oh no, that's fine. <laughs> the situation. The situation was this. Um, Ghost Asylum called me up. The producers called me up because I had written a book on Rhoda Derry, and they asked me about her. And I told her the entire. I I told this producer the entire story, and. Um, they're like, oh, yeah, great. Um, we, we want to interview you on camera, and uh, we want you to be a part of the show. And I said, well, okay, um, I'll, I'll be there. You know, Wednesday at 530, I'll meet you out at the asylum, and we'll, we'll do this on film. Right. Uh, there are, I'm sure I don't have to tell you guys this, but there's a lot of politics that goes on <laughs> in the ghost hunting world. Uh-huh. <laughs> And Ghost Asylum was going to be filming at the Bowen Building, which is poppycock because Rhoda was never in the Bowen Building. So the owner of the Bowen Building really does not like me at all. So mm. he <laughs> talked them out of he talked the producers out of interviewing me. Wow. And they they texted me and said, I said, well, okay, where do you want to meet? And I heard Bowen building, and I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> yeah, this is going to go south real fast. Uh-huh. Um, so I said, where do you want to meet? And he, she's like, oh, well, we decided that we really don't need to interview you after all. I'm like, ah, yeah, okay, all right, no matter. So they do their investigation, and because it involved Rhoda, and because it involved the Peoria State Hospital, I actually watched that <laughs> TV show. Surprise! And <laughs> I I always thought the expression "seeing red" was just that, just an expression. <laughs> but it actually happens because I was just livid at what they were doing. Ghost Asylum's shtick is that they make a ghost trap which is a trigger <laughs> object where they trap the spirit that they're trying to wow. communicate with. <laughs> and what did they do? They built a Unica crib to trap Rhoda Derry's spirit. 
unbelievable. <laughs> That's insane. The gall, the unmitigated gall of this is just mind-blowing. And yeah, if you know Rhoda's story, what makes you think she's going to come within a hundred yards of that? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's... Just I, preposterous. I, I can't imagine the thought process that went behind, well, here's what we're going to do. Right? Well, you know, it, it's much oh, better it's for ratings if you show one and you're going to use it on TV other than go just describe one. You know, yeah. it's all about the ratings. <laughs> it sounds like the uh, storyline yeah. for the next... Oh, and the people at the Bowen were so thrilled because they got to keep the Utica crib. Wow. Mm. <laughs> it, yeah, and they're showing this thing off. Not telling people that it's a reproduction. Mm. So, yeah. It sounds like a lead-in right, for the next... That's all I'm going to say on that subject. <laughs> <laughs> oh, subject I can imagine. Yeah. It sounds like the lead-in for the next yeah. Paranormal Activity movie or something. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> well, and that's understandable because, you know, I mean, we're right here within throwing distance, you know, basically of uh, good old Waverly. And, uh-huh, yeah. you know, d- depending on what you hear, Waverly goes from being the house from Poltergeist all the way to eh. <laughs> There's some stuff. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, everyone's experience is different. Exactly. What I did want to say, though, for all of the Pongite nation out there, Mm -hmm. (laughs) is this book has something for everybody, literally. There's there's history in it, there's drama, there's paranormal, and for Chad, there's there's even a little romance thrown in. Mm -hmm. Thank goodness. Yeah, that's right. I believe you... You have most of the Harlequin romances, don't you? I do. I enjoy the cover art. (laughs) You do. And all of that is just, it's all built in around the compelling story of Rhoda. Yeah. So definitely, definitely, definitely pick that up because there's so much more that goes into it than what we've talked about tonight. Yeah, that, that book has a lot more than what we've covered easily. Yeah. In saying that, where can people find your uh, forty-four years in darkness, and any of your other books that you have out. Well, I invite your listeners to visit me at sylviaschultz.wordpress.com. That's S H U L T S, by the way. And forty-four years in darkness can be found on, and all my other books as well can be found on Amazon. They are available on Kindle. And I have very exciting news. We are working on the audiobook version. Oh, wow. I know, right? That is very cool. <laughs> yes. Audiobooks are great for those car trips. <laughs> yes. Oh, man, they make the miles fly by. They do. That's very true. Right. And I already have a banner up on paronormalguys.com that will take you directly to Sylvia's webpage. Mm-hmm. While you're visiting sylviaschultz.wordpress.com, there is a little thing at the top of the page called Lights Out, and that is my little bitty radio podcast, so people can enjoy it there. I'm working on getting it back up onto iTunes, but it's on YouTube, so head on over to YouTube, subscribe, and enjoy Lights Out. It's where I talk about true ghost stories. Okay, great. And hopefully, maybe sometime in the uh, future, you can uh, come back on uh, good old Pair O Normal Guys and we might uh, talk about some more of the Peoria State Hospital. I would be delighted to. Thank you. Sounds great. Thank you, Sylvia. Thank you for having me. So yeah, to find any of Sylvia's books or her website, just head on over to PairOnormalGuys.com. We'll have some links up and everything. And while you're there, Chad. Yes. What can you do on the website? Why well, you can <laughs> you can listen to episodes. Uh-huh. You could buy a t-shirt. Yes. Because we do still have bowling green masker shirts. Right, there on are there. a few days left on that. Exactly. You can see some of my awesome artwork on some of the thumbnails for said episodes. <laughs> you can. You can. And uh let's see, you can what else, Chris? 
There's all kinds of things in there. I'm I'm lost because our well, website be, is just so vast. Be, being at one of the members of Paranormal Guys that actually sees our website, yeah, <laughs> I can tell you. Uh-huh. Yes, Chad's right. Listen to the shows. Uh, there's some of Chad's artwork. There's uh, where you can buy one of the Bowling Green Massacre T-shirts up. Mm-hmm. There is also forms on there. Forms, forms, huh. or rather, form <laughs> that you can sign up for an email. That will alert you whenever a new episode of Paranormal Guys drops. The hell you say. Had to work that in. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. Nice. Uh, There's some pictures. There's all kinds of fun, groovy things to do on the website. So go take a look. See what you think. And you can also see what we're up to at our Facebook page. Mm -hmm. Which is facebook.com slash Guys. Chad likes to put some really cool, interesting stories up on there from time to time. I try. <laughs> he does. He tries, and that's what matters. Mm-hmm. And while you're looking at our Facebook page, why not go on over to the Facebook page of one Mr. William Blanchard? Musical genius. That's facebook.com slash William Blanchard soundtrack. William's the gentleman that supplies the music for Pair O Normal Guys, so show him some love, some shares, some some likes, buy some tunes. Mm-hmm. Over the ear hugs. That's right. <laughs> and as always, Chad, mm-hmm. have a Pair O Normal Weeks.